John 7, verse 37 through 52. We come to the close of this rather long chapter in the middle of John, which told us, tells us of the events of Christ's last feast of the tabernacle. We've seen so much here in this chapter, which points us to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. He said, I have come with a message that is not mine. I have come on the authority of the Father who has sent me from Him. That's an interesting choice of words Jesus had when He answered their questions about Him. I've come from the Father. Do, do, do you notice that? Not by. I wasn't sent by the Father. I was sent from the Father. That little word from, that little preposition there, carries a lot of weight in this chapter. You say, why? What's the difference? By, from, what's the big difference? Well, if he was sent by the Father, he might be finding his commission at his birth. But saying he's from the Father is to say he dwelled with the Father before he was born. In other words, he was coming from where the Father was to the earth. He was being commissioned from eternity past. We've seen so much that points to His deity, that He is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the Savior of all of those who believe. And we come to the close, and we find for the first time a public teaching. Now, I understand you've got a red letter edition, and so you've seen already probably that there is uh, red letters prior to verse uh, 37 where we're picking up. All of that, if you pay attention to the reading of God's Word, is answering questions. I'm not saying it's not public. I'm not saying he's not training and teaching. But he was just simply answering questions given to him by the audience. Okay? 37 is a transition. On the last day of the feast, he rose up to teach. I want to read the passage. Follow, please. If you don't follow in your Bible, you're going to lose it. You're not going to see it. Read along with me. And while I'm preaching, follow. When I say it's in a verse that I'm speaking about, follow that verse. It'll help you concentrate. It'll help you gather the thoughts. John 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up, and I want you to underline that, cried out, shouted, your Bible may say. If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John says, he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division. Underline that word, division. Jesus Christ is a divider of men. Do you know that? There was a division among the people. 
over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers went, then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But the crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, our friend from chapter 3, who was a Pharisee who had come to him by night and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. There are men and women in this room who, if you're honest, would have to admit that you, to this point in life, have rejected the invitation of Jesus Christ. There's no way in a room this size with this many people that somebody is not sitting here in unbelief. It's impossible. And the question I'm asking you in this sermon, I think what the question is being begged by John through the writing of this word is, will you, today, will you accept the great invitation? It's the title of this message. Will you accept the great invitation? Everyone loves to get an invitation. Your children love to get invitations to parties, don't they? I mean, when you bring in the mail and you say, you got mail, and they look at it, and their little faces just light up thinking about a birthday party, right? You love to be invited to a wedding. It'll be a great celebration. It's a picture of your friendship with a person, how close you are to them. You enjoy that kind of invitation. More than anything, what you like is a personal invitation. You like it when someone says to you, will you come to my house and eat dinner with my family and have a relationship with us? You enjoy personal invitations. We filled thousands of invitations in our life, don't we? Some of you are real popular. You might field many thousands of invitations in your lifetime. Invitations are throughout our life. But none of them even reaches the bottom level of this invitation. This is the greatest invitation in all the world. The fact is, as some of us have rejected Christ, we've rejected the invitation because it's not appealing to our flesh. We don't like what Jesus has to say to us. The fact is, you would rather focus on sin and personal momentary pleasure rather than accept Jesus Christ and His offer of eternal salvation. Others believe the invitation is too difficult. He asks for too much. I just can't do it. You're a lot like the rich young ruler who when Christ said, you're almost there, all that's left is sell everything you got and follow me. He said, it's too hard. You've read the words of Jesus in Matthew 
when he says, if a man is not worthy, is not ready and willing to give up his family and his friends and his position and his wealth, then he's not worthy to follow me. He cannot call himself my disciple. You've read those words and you say, it's too difficult of an invitation. I don't want to accept. I decline. I believe some of you have just simply rejected the invitation of Christ because you settle for the religious instead of relationship. It's safer to come to church, read your Bible, pray some prayers, do some good things. It's safer to live that way than to come into a relationship with a holy God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so you're as one who's been invited to a feast and you're standing in the door, but you won't come in. And up to this point in your life, you've thought, I'm close enough. The fact that I'm willing to come this far, He'll shine His light on me. And may I say to you the words of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in Matthew 7 at the end of His Sermon on the Mount, when He said, many people will come to me in that day and they will say, Lord, Lord, have we not proclaimed Your name? Have we not healed people? Have we not done many mighty things in Your name? And Jesus will say it to them, depart from me. I don't know who You are. And I think those people will say, Lord, we were right there. Did you not see us? We were even standing at the door having received the invitation. We wanted to get close. We drew close through the church. Isn't that enough? And Jesus will say, no, it's not enough. I didn't ask you to come close. I didn't ask you to commit your life to some institution on the earth. I called you to relate personally with me. And you wouldn't do it. So I don't know you. Depart from me. I think we can add to that words from other times he preached that same message when he says, when those people leave, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth occurs because of inner turmoil realizing it's too late. The door's closed. Some of you have rejected the invitation. And I'm asking you the question, will you accept? I'm asking you again, will you accept? I want to look at this passage with you this morning. I believe it deals with an invitation by Jesus, the greatest invitation ever offered. And then, I hope that we'll see how the people of Jesus' day responded to the invitation and how we can respond to it. Let me give you just quickly the setting of this passage in verse 37 on the last day. That's the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. There was eight days. This is the last day. This is the day when the people followed the priest to the pool of Siloam. They drew a cup of water, the priest, in a golden cup. And they returned to Jerusalem to the temple. And they paraded around the altar seven times. And then they poured the water over the altar in semblance of God's blessing of dwelling with His people in the wilderness. He dwelt with them. The reason they scooped up the water and brought it back was because if you remember, the rock provided water for them when there was no clean water to drink. And they were remembering His goodness to their forefathers in the desert. And furthermore, the water began to symbolize throughout the Old Testament 
the Holy Spirit. Many times we see God representing His presence as a river, as a flowing water, a good cistern, not a broken cistern, He would say in Jeremiah. A source of living water. And so we see that that's the setting. This is the eighth day. Jesus watched them go out. Can you just picture it in your mind? Jesus at the temple, looking as the people herd down to the Siloam, scoop up some water, come back to the altar, go around the altar seven times, pour the water out, and begin to celebrate God's presence. And all the while, rejecting God's presence through His Son, Jesus Christ. So I believe it moved Jesus when He saw this. I believe in His Spirit. He was broken as He looked at the faces of these lost people. And He contemplated their eternal destiny. And then he said, crying out. That word is a word of emotion in the original. He wasn't just trying to get over the roar of the crowd to speak. He was doing that. But he was exerting great emotion when he said these words. And when he offered this invitation to them and to you. And he said, if anyone thirsts, Don't go to Siloam and draw a cup and pour it on an altar. Come to me and drink. And I'll fulfill the Scripture that was promised to you and your forefathers in the Old Testament. That out of your heart will come many flowing waters of life. He said it then, and He's saying it today, and He'll say it until He comes to end all things. He's inviting you. And the question is, what will you do? Will you answer Him? Yes. Or will you reject Him and say no? Because you see, you have received the great invitation. You have. It's the first point of this message. You have received it. If anyone thirsts, Jesus called out loudly and indiscriminately to everyone at the feast. He cried out to them. If anyone, that's an open term, anyone. Don't ever deny the anyone's in the Bible. Don't ever deny them thinking you're doing God a favor. He said if anyone, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, Woman, man, anyone, thirst, come to me and drink. That's the invitation. I know he's talking about all those people because all those people were there. In, that, in this feast, we know that people gathered from all over the world. And we know that the Romans stood watching these feasts to make sure that nothing got out of hand. And so in the sound of his voice were both Jew and Gentile. In the sound of His voice were free men and slaves. 
Within the sound of his voice were men and women. Within the sound of his voice were all classes socially, culturally, nationally. All people were within the sound of his voice. Somebody from everywhere was there. And he was saying, if any one of you thirst, come to me. This is not an offer to somebody else. This is not an offer to the people that lived in Jesus' day. This is an offer to anyone in this room. If you're thirsty, come to Jesus. That's the offer. That's the offer. It stands open today. And we offer it to you as a church, this living water, Jesus Christ. We offer it to you. I've often been asked, Carlton, why don't you have an invitation What they mean to ask is, why don't you have an altar call? It's two totally different things. Can I say that? I'm not going to bash altar calls. God uses altar calls to save people all the time. Satan also uses altar time and altar calls to confuse the populace into believing they've made false decisions real. But don't ever leave this church thinking, There's not an invitation. I'm making it right now. If you're hearing my voice right now, what I'm saying to you is Jesus has said, not Carlton, but Jesus, if you're thirsty today, come to me and drink. And I'll give you living water that will spring up out of your soul and flow out. It's a standing invitation. It's been standing since the creation of man and the fall of man. God has often offered this invitation to anyone. I don't care if you're a free man or a slave, a Jew or a Gentile, a female or a male. I don't care if you're rich or poor, intelligent or ignorant, attractive or homely in your appearance. It doesn't matter to me and it doesn't matter to Jesus. He's saying, come, anyone. That's what the word means. Anyone thirsts. Let him come. Secondly, you must be thirsty to receive this great invitation. It's not enough to get an invitation. You've got to want the invitation. you got to have a desire for it. If anyone is thirsty, that's the first qualifier in the passage. The invitation's open to everybody. But he's saying, you're not going to come unless you're thirsty. So I asked the question there... What is a thirst? Well, there's many types of thirsts, I believe. See if some of these thirsts exist in your life. You have a thirst for riches. You have a thirst for riches. Riches bring us protection. They bring us status. They bring us acceptance. They bring us accomplishment. Riches bring us power. Riches bring us a source to reach other things that we want. There's a great thirst in our day for riches. God doesn't ignore that thirst. In the gospel, He offers an eternal inheritance. See, the invitation for the thirsty, if your thirst is riches, what the question you've got to ask is, do I want riches for today or do I want riches for all of eternity? That's the question you've got to ask. Not, do I want riches or not? That's That's the wrong question. God, listen to this, has no paupers in His family. You say, well, I'm poor. 
only for a moment. Only for a moment. Because at the twinkling of an eye, for the rest of eternity, you will have all that Christ has. And He has all things. God doesn't have any paupers in His family. David said, I don't beg for bread. And I've not seen God's people begging for bread. In all of my days, God has provided for His people. What a beautiful picture. Even for someone in physical famine, God has provided bread for His people in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. You may be here thirsting for riches, and I tell you, your choice, your decision has to be riches for today or riches for eternity. You might be thirsting for relationship. we got people in this congregation who are hungry for a relationship with somebody or something. And I'm telling you, He's offering you sonship. You can have a relationship for the moment. You can have a husband. You can have a wife. You can have children. You can have friends. You can have a church family. You can have all that stuff. And at death, all of those things cease. When you get to heaven, you won't be a mother or a father. You won't be a husband or a wife. You won't be a child of your parents. You won't be all those things. When you get to heaven, you will be the child of God a son, an heir. Yes, women, I'm talking to you. God never calls you in relation to Christ. He never calls you daughters. Now, He does in the familial sense sometimes in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, when He refers to you ladies, He puts you on the same status as the firstborn male. He says, whatever Christ has, you have. See, people... People just don't get it. God's not a sexist. What he's saying to you ladies is, you want a relationship? Don't settle for a relationship with some earthly man. Have a relationship with Christ which will make you among the firstborn and the heir of all things through Him who saved you. Better than a wife, better than a mother, better than a daughter, better than anything. It's the most honored title you could ever have, men and women. If you're here and you're thirsty for a relationship, I'm telling you Jesus Christ offers the solution for your thirst in Himself, sonship. Third thirst you may have is for pleasure. A God made us thirst pleasure. Jonathan Edwards focused his life on this. John Piper has focused his life on this pleasure idea. And they've captured it in a concept called Christian hedonism. For so long, Christians have said, when you become a Christian, you've got to quit enjoying life. You've got to just suffer through till eternity. That's a lie. That's an absolute lie. God wants you to enjoy this life and the next. And joy comes in all forms and fashions. It comes in death. It comes in life. It comes in poor. It comes in rich. It comes in full. It comes in hungry. It comes in relationships with a lot of people. It comes in a relationship with nobody but Jesus Christ. It comes in happy freedom and shackled, joyous imprisonment. Pleasure was a function, is a function of God's creation which causes us to find our pleasure in him 
through Christ. God is most satisfied with you when you are most satisfied with your God. Stop moaning about being a Christian and all the things you don't have. God would say, that's blasphemous. You should be joyous over what I've given you. You're in relationship with the eternal God. And you're moaning as if you have nothing. When your child dies, when your husband dies, when you lose your job, when you're put in prison for his sake, when you don't have food on the table, when there's no end to the miseries, when the doctor walks in and says you've got cancer or you've got MS or you've got whatever the physical ailment may be that he diagnoses you with, you see, pleasure is still possible in Christ. It's called fulfillment. God offers pleasure that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You already have it. You're not waiting on it. You've got it. It's present with you in His Son, Jesus Christ. You may have a thirst for family. So many people want to be married. So many people want to have children. So many people want to have a great family life because theirs is not up to snuff. It's not up to par. And God offers a family, a covenant family. He calls it the church. He calls it Israel. He calls it His people. I will be their God and they will be my people and they will dwell with me in the land forever. That's His promise. You have a family. You're thirsting for a relationship. You're thirsting for fulfillment. You're thirsting for family. Maybe you're thirsting for a purpose. You come to this place and say, I don't have a purpose. All I do is work and go to sleep, get up, work and go to sleep, get up. I'm just barely making it through today every day, Pastor. I don't have a purpose. Well, He offers a purpose. In Christ is called the gospel mission. I'm just going to challenge you. I'm just going to get down here with you. Some of you need to leave America. You need to kiss the dream of America goodbye. And you need to go serve God on a mission field. Some of you need to. Some of you are young and you need to. And some of you are old and you need to. If your motivation for staying in this country is safety, riches, pleasure, protection, whatever it is, being close to your family, then I just simply ask this. What does Christ mean when He says all those things must be forsaken for Him? What does He mean? And some of you are waiting on me to let you off the hook. I'm not going to. Because, see, I think we got enough people letting us off the hook in our culture, telling us it's all right, telling us missionaries are some odd breed of people that God just sends every now and then to the world. You want purpose and you're thirsty for it. You find it in Christ. It's called gospel mission. I'm not saying you can't do it here. I'm just saying when most of the evangelicals in the world live in our hemisphere, there's a problem. Serious problem, and we need to address it. And you may be the solution. He says, if you're thirsty, come to Him. Now, if you're not thirsty, not only will you not come, but He's limited the invitation. You're not going to come, 
And in reality, the invitation has passed you by. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. There is one way to eternally quench your thirst. You must come to Jesus. That's what he says. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. If you're thirsty, you can fulfill that thirst or try to quench it a lot of different ways. And they may be fun for a season, but they will be bankrupt in the end. They will never satisfy your soul. You've got to come to Jesus. You've got to drink of Jesus. You've got to take in the gospel. Drink, he says. Come to me and drink in me. You see, drinking What you eat, what you drink, is what you are. What he's saying here is, when you come to me, you're not just getting a stamp and going away and got your life and Jesus has stamped it. You now have my life. When you come to me, you will drink of me and then I will transform you into my likeness. You'll look like me. Every fiber of your being will cry out, Christ is God. He is my God. He is my Savior. Every fiber of your being will be infected with the gospel. Be changed. Be transformed. I'm not asking you to come and take some inoculation to sin and go away unchanged. I'm asking you to come and be absolutely obliterated and changed and transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. He says, come to me and drink. Take me in. When you get the gospel, you get Jesus. Is that clear enough? You don't get a lot of frilly things. You get him. He is the gospel. He's offering himself. You must come and drink and only drink of Christ for the rest of your life. There's nothing else. You you will receive, when you come to Him, you will receive the Holy Spirit when you respond to this great invitation. Verses 38 through 39 say, Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is the end of the large points of this message. There's there's one more brief point that really we're going to run through those past the last of this passage. Don't shut me off. Hear these words. The invitation is to you. The invitation is to come to Jesus. When you come to Jesus, you get the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is dwelling in all who believe. God is dwelling with you and in you. That's why I say... You really need to look into your heart. I can't see it and find out if you really know Christ. Because when Christ is your Savior, the Spirit lives in you and you look different. You're an alien. You're a pilgrim. You don't love this world. You love the world that is to come. And if you don't, and you can try to fool yourself all day long into believing you know Christ. But the truth is, you probably don't. 
Spirit transforms us into Christ like or into Christ's likeness. We were thirsty and Jesus satisfied our thirst. When you become a Christian, you were thirsty when you came and He satisfied you and He continually satisfies you. The Spirit makes us a source of water. Get this, for others. That's right there in the verse. You say, how do you get others in this verse? Verse 38, out of His heart will flow rivers of living water. Well, where are they going? To others. If you claim the name of Christ this morning and you are a self-centered being, if you would describe yourself as only about yourself, your motivations in your heart, when you look at them, are self-centered, I would say, in all humility, by the power of the Scriptures, you're probably not a Christian. Christians are not self-centered beings. They are others-centered. The water doesn't just come in your life, it flows out of your life to others. The result of salvation, the result of salvation is a changed life which infects other people with the gospel. The result of salvation. That's not popular in our day. At all. That makes some of you very uncomfortable. It should. When's the last time you repented of your selfishness? Not repented of being called at being selfish, but repented of the fact that all you contemplate and think of is yourself. And your motivation is yourself. It's the last time you confessed it. Look, if you can't remember it, there's a serious spiritual problem. I rarely go a day without having to confess that I'm motivated for my own good and not others. I had to confess to a man. I told the guys to hold me accountable on Friday mornings this week. I had to confess to a man this week that I had been sharing the gospel with that the reality was I was so self-centered that most of the time when I was sharing the gospel with him, it was so that he might get saved for my own good. When's the last time you made a confession of the sin of selfishness, pride, and self-centeredness? If it hadn't come to the Rolodex lately in your brain, I'm just saying, the Bible says if you're a believer, you're other-centered. Out of your heart will flow living water. It's others' focus, not me. I, I want to give a testimony that you probably read of, and, and please understand when I say this, that this man would, is, is, is going to probably be angry with me, but that's okay. When I studied this this week, I thought about the fact that I went in a pre-surgery room to pray for a man who was going to have his throat sliced open. He didn't pray for himself. He prayed for us. He prayed for me. He prayed for Dave. He prayed for his family. He prayed for lost people. 
they might believe. He prayed for another friend that was there with him. What I'm telling you is, believers, true believers, have living water flowing out of them. And it infects other people. If that's not the case, and it's never been the case for you, I'm just saying, the invitation is here to come to Christ. He will satisfy your thirst. And you won't have to muster up love for other people. It will flow out of you, living water. How will it come out of you? Through the Holy Spirit. See, the Christian life is not about your fruit. It's about the Spirit's fruit through you. Don't misunderstand. I'm not telling you to be other-centered. I'm telling you, if you are a believer, you are other-centered. I'm telling you, if you have the Holy Spirit, you are bearing fruit. Not go try to muster it up and do a good thing now and then. I'm saying that the fruits of the Spirit listed for us in Galatians 5, Paul says, are the fruits of the Spirit, not of me. They're of the Spirit. So the invitation is to Christ to satisfy thirst so that you might have the Spirit which produces living water which flows out of you to other people and affects other people. I said that's the last of the big points. Here's the last point right here. You will have to respond to the great invitation. You've got to. You don't have a choice. It's been laid out there clearly this morning. If you've never heard it before, you've heard it today. So you've got to respond. Let's quickly look at some responses. Some of you will respond by reason. By mental capacity. I, uh, we have it in John ver- 7 verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. They reasoned out in their mind that this is the prophet. In Deuteronomy, Moses had said the great prophet would come. He was speaking of Christ. But the Jews had turned that into a forerunner of Christ. So what they're saying is, the prophet's come. This must be Elijah who's come back to be with us. They were reasoning. It made sense to them in their human thought process. And some of you are doing that right now. You've reasoned out Christ. You've got Him in a box. He fits your life and you fit what you think the gospel is and you're satisfied. But are you satisfied or are you not still thirsty? That's the question. Will you have your thirst quenched by Christ, not the prophet? Christ, the Son of God. Others said He is the promised one. But even this is a reasoned response. Some of them were probably saved, but a lot of them just said, yeah, he's the promised one. Some of you will respond cynically to the gospel. Some of you have shut down, really, emotionally and mentally, and you've said, this is in for me. Verses 41 through 42 say that. That response is right here in the Scriptures. Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? They said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? I thought the Scripture said He came from the offspring of David and even the city of Bethlehem where David dwelt. They're cynical. They've caught up on a trivial detail of the promise of the Messiah and they're they're denying Christ based on that. Some of you are doing that. You're saying, well, I could believe all those other things about Jesus. I just can't believe in the virgin birth. That's just beyond me. I don't see how that's even possible. And that's going to keep you out of heaven for eternity because you refuse to believe that fact and accept Him as the promised one. Some of you are cynical about the fact that He literally lived a perfect life. And you say, nobody's perfect. Even if He was God in the flesh, He couldn't resist. Seeing His flesh would sin. And that fact's going to keep you out of heaven. Some of you don't 
believe he really was in the flesh. You think that was some kind of mirage that was played and that Jesus was, is, is only a spirit and you're some Gnostic believer believing that the spirit's good and the flesh is bad and you're going to get to heaven through the spirit. Some of you are cynical enough to believe that Jesus didn't die on the cross, that all this has been fiction that I've been talking about this morning. There is no real gospel. Some of you are cynical enough to believe that he did die, but he didn't, wasn't raised from the dead. And you say, what does that matter? Like N.T. Wright said, if they produce a body, it doesn't change my Christianity. Well, excuse me. If they produce Christ's body, it changes Christianity. There is no Christianity. And some of you are so cynical, even about that detail, that you'll say, nah, I'm just not going to accept the gospel as you've just presented it. I believe enough in believing he's the Son of God, he lived and he died. But I don't believe in a resurrection, not in the body. Some of you are cynical and some of you will have anger take over. In your, in your cynical way, you will become angry. They were divided, the people were in verse 43. Some of them wanted to arrest him. And no, you can't arrest him. But you would shut the mouths of anyone who would tell you the gospel. And that's your response to the invitation. Some of you are going to reason it out mentally. Some of you are going to be cynical and reject it. Some of you are going to encourage others to reject Christ. You're going to go a step further. Not only are you going to reject it, you're going to tell others not to accept it. The Pharisees wanted him arrested. Why did you not bring him in verse 45? Why did you not bring him to us? The Pharisees' ignorance just jumps off the page at me. The Pharisees said, have any of, have, have you also believed, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? This crowd that doesn't know the law, they are cursed. Now one of their own rose and said, do we in our law convict a man before he's been tried? The lawyers don't know the law. They're ignorant. Hey, here's a novel idea. Why didn't somebody walk up and say, Jesus, you claim to be the Christ. The Christ is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Where were you born? Bethlehem of Judea. And what stock do you come from, young man? Well, I come from the shoot of Jesse. My dad and my mom proceed from the line of the king, David. They wouldn't even do that. And they're encouraging people not to believe. They wouldn't even do simple investigative work. What anybody, that's what Nicodemus is saying. You've convicted him and you haven't even tried him. You haven't even asked him a question yet. You haven't even given him an opportunity to teach or preach to you. Are you also from Galilee, they say, to Nicodemus mocking him? Look and see. No prophet comes from Galilee. Beg to differ. I beg to differ. The man Jonah came from Galilee. And he was a prophet of God. And so you people that are so cynical and arrogant and leading others not to believe, have you even investigated the truth? Or you just rejected it out of hand and now you're trying to remove others? I want to warn you. Jesus Christ said, Woe to anyone who causes one of these to stumble. 
it'd be better for you on the day of judgment had you had a millstone tied around your neck and be cast into the deep. You think about that the next time you go to open your mouth cynically and put down the gospel. Think about it. And may that be a challenge to you that before you open your mouth, you might ought to investigate the truth. Many atheists have been converted because they investigated the truth. George Whitfield was a famous preacher, Methodist preacher, Anglican preacher in his day. He, brought, he preached the gospel all over England before coming to the United States. And one of the greatest philosophers of the day, David Hume, often went to hear him speak. Hume hated Christianity. He despised it. He despised it. But he went to hear Whitfield preach over and over again. And finally someone asked him, Mr. Hume, why do you go and listen to this man preach the gospel? If you don't believe in Jesus, why do you go hear this preaching? And he said, Whitfield has a tongue from heaven. And if anyone could persuade me to believe, it would be him. He even repeated another occasion the words of another man in the scriptures when Paul preached. He said, you almost persuade me. Don't be David Hume. Don't be David Hume. Don't walk away today without accepting this invitation. You've been invited by Jesus Christ to find your eternal satisfaction through His Spirit. Will you accept this great invitation? Let's pray.